Good morning. Good to see you this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, as we're launching into a uh, Christmas sermon series leading up to Christmas and this season of Advent. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of verses that you're familiar with, and here's a little spoiler alert. Next year, in December, we're going to read a lot of the same verses, because <laughs> this is the Christmas story. And yet, it's an important story. So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Which, you know, time out. Really? Supernatural things, the only explanation. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as uh, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Um, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name. Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We talked about this a few weeks ago. For the Jews, names were really important. This wasn't just what you were called. This was actually an explanation of what you were about. They were themes. They were... They were um, explanations of who you are. And so the name Jesus literally means Yahweh is salvation. This is what he's going to be about. This is the theme of his life. For he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. And this is where we're going to key in today. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what does it say? Emmanuel. Now, this doesn't mean that he was literal, that was his handle. Obviously, Jesus wasn't called Emmanuel by name, but this was the theme. This described who he was, this described what he was about, which means God with us. That's the point of it all. When Joseph woke from the sleep... He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated. May God bless his word as it's read. So for many of us, we think it's not Christmas without whatever, right? It's not Christmas without fill in the blank. We would fill in the blank differently for many of us. It's not Christmas until we put the tree up. It's not Christmas until, I don't know, there are presents wrapped under the trees. It's not Christmas until you see your grandkids. It's not Christmas until whatever. For me, it's not Christmas until there's pecan pie. <laughs> my grandmother, as I was growing up, she was actually my great-grandmother, but functionally, she was very close to her. And she had, she's this little old southern woman. She's about this tall. And uh, she could make a pecan, well, everything she cooked was amazing, but her pecan pie was just, like, I know you think yours is good, hers is better. <laughs> I'm just telling you. And it, it, it was very sad, because I was maybe, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old when she passed, and so then there's no more pecan pie. And then my mom got a hold of that recipe, and it was Christmas again. 
Every year it was Christmas, and my mama would make me two pecan pies, right? And now my wife got her hands on the recipe, and I think it's better than it's ever been. But it is not Christmas until we have a pecan pie smelling up the house and I get to eat it. And that's just part of Christmas for me. You would fill it in differently, no doubt, right? And for many of us, as time goes on, we learn that Christmas does change because people that we love are no longer there. Um, and uh, we uh, mourn and grieve and it changes the complexion of Christmas. And it changes the complexion of Christmas, to be honest with you, forever for us. For the rest of our lives, Christmas is going to be different. But there are four keys to Christmas, which is what we're going to key in on to the, today and then over the next four weeks. Uh, the four keys of Christmas. We're going to talk today about the presence of God, like that's one of the things that Christmas brings. Um, for us, uh, having God's presence, obviously, as we just read, it was a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. But we don't even realize, which is why we're going to unpack it today, we don't even realize how poignant this is for us in ways that maybe you don't think about, and we'll wrap it up by talking about this. Even if you're not sure about the church thing or you're not a church person, still the fact that Christ is near affects all of us. Uh, next week we're going to talk about inclusion, how the Christmas story is really one of inclusion. And so it's not really Christmas until we're including you know, it's, it wasn't just the kings in palaces, it was the shepherds. That's who the story went to. This was for everyone. Um, that we were set free from our sins, the, the, the idea of emancipation. And then ultimately, on Christmas Eve, which I've been asked already, so I'll just let you know, uh, we're going to have Christmas Eve service, same time, 10 a.m. on Christmas Eve morning. If anything changes, we'll let you know. But right now, that's the plan. We're just going to put out extra cheers, and we're just going to have church, all right? So that's, that's Sunday morning. We're going to talk about hope. And really, the idea behind this series that we're calling Sounds of the Season is we're going to use some, some of the old traditional Christmas carols really to key in on some of these ideas. And so today, we're going to unpack, as we've already sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, this is really one of the themes uh, that you hear in this hymn uh, from Charles Wesley really is this idea of the presence of Christ. Uh, presence is a key theme in Scripture. So I gave you some scripture in your notes. You, you can follow along. Hopefully you are following along. We'll put them on the screen here. Uh, 1 Chronicles 16, 11. The injunction is that we should seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His what? Presence. Seek His presence continually. This is something we should constantly be focused on. We should constantly be drawn to. How do we seek out God's presence? How do we desire to have God as close as we possibly can, right? Which, again, Jesus would change. The coming of Jesus, I should say, would change the terminology. And it would change how we think about seeking the presence of God. Psalm 23, which many of us have memorized and most of us are familiar with. And it's one of those really important verses. You know, anytime that you go in the Christian bookstore and, you know, they have the plaques that you hang on the wall. Anytime you see a verse that, like, you've seen it on your grandma's wall or on your mom's wall, right? It's a bit on a plaque. That's, that's a pretty good idea that a lot of people are interested in. Like, I'm not being disrespectful at all. There's a reason that the Psalm 23 winds up in those places. Such a powerful psalm. I always think about it in the context of funerals, because that's where I often read this. And it's because of this verse, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. How is it that you and I have the opportunity, even at the lowest moments that life can bring us, to not be afraid? Well, what does the end of the verse say? 
Because God's with us. I will fear no evil specifically because for you are with me. I don't have to be afraid. Listen, I can be sad when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, but I don't have to be fearful because God's with me. I can mourn, but I don't have to tremble. God's with me. This is how important the presence of God is. And then Psalm 34, 18, which honestly, as we started to unpack this, as we started to unpack this, uh, this idea, as I was preparing this sermon, trying to wrap my mind around, you know, this is not necessarily a preach verse by verse through a passage sermon. This is not one of those sermons. It's an idea, right? What, what does it mean to, to practice the presence of God, to understand the presence of God? And this was one of the first verses that came to my mind, Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. How many times have you and I been able to say, that's me? How many of us right now would say, that's where I'm living? And maybe it's because of something I mentioned earlier, right? It's Christmas, it's the holidays, it's the difficulty that you've experienced. And for some of us, we've experienced such depths of difficulty and maybe even the death of those that we love or some other kind of tragedy, right? And you know that it forever changes the way you're going to interact with this time of year. And I could just remind you that even though that's 100% true for you, you still don't have to fear. You still don't have to be afraid because we know God is with us. He's near to the brokenhearted. And again, this idea of Emmanuel was not his literal name. This is not what Jesus would be called by name. But for them, it was about his title. It was about his testimony. It was about the theme that his life would produce, that God came near. This is the idea of Christmas. And here's the thing. Listen, I think we missed this. I, I can't get too far away from my notes because we've got a lot of ground to cover today. But I think we miss the idea, when we say that God's holy, what we miss is it primarily contained in that concept, the way that Jews would have thought about it. Primarily contained in the concept of God's holiness is that he's other. It's that he's, he's separate. This is why when we talk about holiness, we say set apart. And one of the things that grieves my heart is that over the years, the church has taken that, we've taken that, we've then used it as a club. We're set apart. I don't mean a club that you join. I mean a club that you beat people with, right? We're set apart, and that means we're better than other people. No, it's not what it means. It just means we're different. This is the core idea behind holiness, is that God is other. And as we become holy, as we grow in sanctification, we're planning now sermon series for next year, and we're going to unpack this idea at Easter next year, right? What does it mean to grow in holiness? It's a huge concept for us. What it means is, if you think about it spatially, if we're all kind of here together, humanity's kind of here together in our mess and our pain and our difficulty, and God's over there, right? The idea of sanctification or growing in holiness is that we're going to move toward God. We're going to become more and more like God. And as we move toward God, we're going to leave some things behind, aren't we? Because that's how holiness works. It doesn't mean we're better than anybody. And could I just say this to you? If you're not sure about the God thing, and maybe it took all you could do to get all your courage together to walk in here and sit down because of the way that Christians have talked to you, could I just apologize to you for that? 
Because nobody's better than anybody else. We're just called to be different. We're not high and mighty, holier than thou. Is not a gospel posture. Thank you. It's not. I got one amen out of it. I'm going to say it anyway. You guys have figured that out. I'm going to say it. Whether you say amen or not, I'm going to say it. Here, listen. The idea of Emmanuel, this separation, this spatial separation, the idea of Emmanuel is that God came near. God came near. It's the link. It's the link between us here and our pain and our sinfulness and our frustration and anger and all the stuff that humanity has, right? All the baggage that we have. It's the link between that and God. It's the link between God way over there and all of us right here in our pain and difficulty. God stepped into it. God came here, obviously, he came here so that theologically it could all be arranged for us to go there. It's a pretty important idea. Matthew bookends his gospel. Obviously, we're in Matthew chapter 1 now. At the end, we're going to read Matthew chapter 28. And he bookends his, his gospel with this emphasis of the presence of God. One of the last things Jesus is going to say is, I'll, I'm with you always. God's presence is now a tangible reality for us. So why is this incarnation, this presence, and I'm using the two words interchangeably, right? If you go ahead and, and flip to the next slide here, right? You see incarnation and presence together. I did that because I want you, when you see or hear incarnation, we, we like to talk about theological terms, right? And so incarnation is the idea of presence. By the way, time out. This is one of the reasons that I think church online doesn't work long term. And if you ask me what do I think about it, I'll say, you know what, it's a substitute for a season. It can be, and for many people it is. And if that's all you have, then that's great. But what's missing? Incarnation. We need to be incarnational. It's okay to have phone calls and texts with people who are far away, right? But we need to gather we need to gather incarnationally because there are a thousand things that happen when we're all together in the same place that we don't even all realize. We haven't cataloged all the benefits of being together because this wasn't our idea. This was God's idea. And so there are a thousand benefits that we haven't thought about yet, but we still get to experience them. Why? Because incarnation is a really important idea to God. So why was this so vital? Why was the incarnation of Jesus so vital to the Christmas narrative? And why is it so vital to your narrative and to my narrative, to the story of our lives? Well, the first idea, as you see there, Jesus' incarnation or his presence brings us hope and joy. I kept finding myself being drawn to John chapter 1, the, that, that Logos passage where it unpacks who Jesus is. There's all this, it's just dripping with theology, right? We preached it a couple of years ago. Uh, huge idea of who Jesus is and what happened when God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? John 1, verses 4 to 5, in Him was life, and the life was the what? The light of men. The light of men. Please listen. 
This is one of those ideas that especially for those of us who are like church people and we're kind of familiar with things and we know the drill, right? This is one of those ideas that we rush past that's actually deeply important. That Jesus is light. In him was life and that life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness. The darkness doesn't overtake the light. The light shines in the darkness which means that Jesus, is, he knows all. He's aware of all. He has no need for me or you or anyone else to instruct him of anything. He sees it for what it is. Listen, look at me. There are things, for some of us, there are things in our lives that are going on and that idea frightens us that Jesus sees everything, that he's aware of everything. For some of us, that causes us to, to tremble. We're going to actually talk about that in just a second, but I get it. I understand why you'd feel that way. It doesn't change the fact that he's the light. He's the light of men, right? The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. As the light, he reveals God's original design for us. And I'm, I'm just telling you, listen, I know how sermons work. I know that maybe you're dialed in right now, but in a few minutes you're going on a little mental vacation. Some of you are going to pick up your phone. I can see it reflecting on your face, by the way. <laughs> I actually am looking at you. This is, this is not a game, right? I know, because I, that's how my mind works. It wanders if you hear what I'm about to say, but you don't catch the wrap-up to it later, then you're going to misunderstand the whole point. The beginning of the gospel is that there's something wrong with you. And the interaction of Jesus Christ is that you're interacting with the light. And part of the story is that you and I are broken. On our own, we're broken. Now, the gospel is good news, and what I just told you is not great. That doesn't make us feel better, right? Well, that's not the whole story. That's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story, that we're broken. There's something wrong with us. This, this gets highlighted because Jesus is the light. And by the way, I said this a few weeks ago. Some of you have actually already mentioned this to me one-on-one, -on -one, which I love. It means you're listening, right? Being able to admit that and confess that out loud is actually the first step toward healing, being able to admit that we're broken. Why? Because the passage that we read in Matthew, it says he will save his people from their sins. Well, in order for that to happen, we have to have some sins, right? And I'm not just talking about the person sitting next to you. I'm talking about you. We have sin. We are sinful. This is part of what it means to interact with the light. In Isaiah 60, I love this, and we really don't have time to unpack this, but I'm going to try to do it justice in a short amount of time. In Isaiah 60, you have this fantastic prophecy about uh, Jerusalem, right? And about how this, this city that had been despised and had been scoffed at by her neighbors and attacked by her neighbors, this is a prophecy for the future. Listen, this is not a prophecy about when Jesus came. It's a prophecy about the end, when he comes to stay and he's not leaving again bodily, he's here. This is a prophecy for that, right? This city that's despised and attacked by her neighbors will be delighted at in the future. There's going to be this, talk about a plot twist. Our posture toward Jerusalem is going to change. Why? Because Jesus is going to be there. 
It's a big deal. Suddenly we think this city is important. We think that it's delightful. And it, it harkens back. I love this. I told you this is deep and we don't have time to mess with it. I'm probably going to create confusion by even bringing it up. But we're going to give it a try. In Genesis 1, you have this language of the sun and the moon as these, as these lights in the sky. The idea that they understood was that they were actually lamps that were put in place temporarily. Because one day, the light of the world will replace the need for any other light. And you're immediately, for many of you, your church people and your Bible people, and you're thinking about Revelation 21 and 22, which is fantastic, but Isaiah 60 is where it all started. This is where the imagery comes from. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. Here we go. But the Lord will be your everlasting light. Listen to this. What's, what's the result of that? And your God will be your glory. Ultimately, our interaction with the light of the world brings hope. Verse 20, your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And I want you to say this next part with me. We're going to read it together. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Anybody looking forward to that day? When we don't have to mourn anymore? When the light of the world comes to stay? And we get to rejoice over Jerusalem. The constant fullness of divine light will transform everything, including the imperfections of life, the suffering, the difficulty. This is what Jesus' incarnation means. It brings us hope and joy. Second idea. Jesus' incarnation or his presence reveals how well he loves us. Because here's the thing, if the goal was just for him to come and shine light into all the areas where you and I are messed up, that's no fun. I think if that's what church is about, I don't want to go. Some of us have bought that lie, some of us have been told that lie by someone. That's not the story of the gospel. See, you and I are broken, and we live in a broken world. But Jesus didn't just come to point out all of bad things. He didn't just come to make us feel guilty. He didn't come to tell us how rotten we are. That's not the end of the story. There's a bigger and better reason for this. I, this, is the, this is the best that I can do with, for this. So if this illustration helps you, great. If it doesn't, then just forget, just flush it and we'll keep moving, right? Here we go. So as a pastor, over the years, I've seen this, and th this is the best context that I've seen it in, is the idea of parenting where there are two parents, a husband and wife, and they're in the home together, right? And I'm, I know that's not everybody's story, and so I'm not, I'm not saying anything about that. But you often see this context when you see two parents who are together, and they're parenting a child, and all three are present in the same place, is that generally you have one parent that trends toward truth, Y'all know what I'm about to say? And you have one parent that trends toward grace. Now, which of those do you need? Both. My experience has been that often it's the dad that trends towards truth, 
That's not always true, but it's often true. It's true at my house. Of course, I didn't have daughters, so I have no idea. That could change the whole thing. But just the two knucklehead boys, right? Truth. We're going to have some truth. I was, <laughs> this is horrible. Last, I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, last week we were in Fort Worth and I got to go to the John Wayne Museum, which is amazing because I was raised on John Wayne. That's my dad. Like, that's his thing. And so you go to the John Wayne Museum and they have all these quotes. And one of his quotes was, Life is tough, and it's tougher if you're stupid. <laughs> and I immediately went, that is horrible. But it's also kind of true. It's horrible. And don't quote that, right? But at the same time, it can be more painful. I think he said it wrong, because it's not about you being stupid, but you and I do some dumb things at times, right? You better rethink that, because I know you do. Because you're like me. We make dumb choices sometimes. And pain comes. That's like, that's the light. This is truth. This is real. This is how the world works. And yet, it's an impossible standard. How do you ever measure up to it? There's no love in that. There's no acceptance. There's no forgiveness. So you got to have grace. Hey, listen, look at me. So which of these do we pick? Both. Do we let go of one and move toward? This is one of the reasons that I think when you have parents who trend back, you have to find this delicate balance. You say, Tim, I want the absolute black and white. This is always true. Then I would suggest not parenting. Because <laughs> that's just not how it works. You, you have to find this dance back and forth between truth and grace. And Jesus is the perfect balance. He always got it right. Listen very quickly. John 1.14. I told you I was back in John 1 over and over. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father. Full of what? That's exactly what that means. There's a time for one and there's a time for the other. And Jesus always knows. And even though you are broken and I am broken, Jesus didn't, listen, look at me. Jesus didn't just come to reveal our brokenness. He came to offer a solution for it. He came as the only unbroken human, Amen. the sinless human. And he gave his life on the cross so that you and I could swing over to grace and we could live there. The light of the world didn't just come to reveal how rotten we are. He came to do something about it. He came to offer for acceptance and forgiveness and freedom. John 8, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now this was, by the way, the woman that had been caught in adultery. And all the religious leaders got together and they said, hey, Jesus. This was really, the goal of this was to humiliate the woman and to trap Jesus. Welcome to religion. And so they say, hey, here's this woman who's caught in adultery. By the way, the language that's used in John in the original makes us think that maybe it was a trap. Maybe they trapped her on purpose. There's a whole unpacking of this story that we don't have time for this morning. It's possible that one of them was with her. Chew on that later. 
Right. Where's the man? If this is about adultery, there were two people present. Whew. Yeah. What do you think we should do? The law says we should stone her. What do you think we should do, Jesus? Jesus says, famously, what did he say? Let he who is without sin. And every time I tell this story, I have to say this. He could have. He was without sin. He was 100% morally justified to start stoning her. Look me in the eye. Jesus doesn't want to stone you for your sin. But he also doesn't want to pretend that it doesn't exist. You can have perfect justice, even in light of your sin. You, you, you don't have to spend the rest of your life waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's the message of the cross, which, as Eric said earlier, can only happen because there was a baby in a manger. This is the point of the story, is that divine justice happened already. And when we put our faith in that sacrifice on the cross, we're a part of this. We get to be forgiven. Jesus stood up and said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Listen to this. Listen. Every word matters. There's such nuance here. Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Listen. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. I don't condemn you. God love you. Go live you how you want to live. That's not what he said. The order matters. Look at me. I've forgiven you, and you should live differently because I forgave you. He didn't say live differently so that I will forgive you. Somebody get excited about that. Come on. You're not earning his acceptance or his grace. That's not, that's not grace. Grace is I'm giving this to you. Now respond differently. Welcome to discipleship. At Capital City Church, we exist quite simply to help people love Jesus and live for him every day. Don't try to live for him every day unless you start with love. How much he loves you, and we respond to that. I'm so far behind. <laughs> Jesus' incarnation, his presence, means he will always remain. He will always remain. This is simple. We don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but it's powerful. Simple can be powerful. The promise of his presence is precious for us, and it's permanent. There's nothing that you can do to make Jesus Christ abandon you. Just let that wash over you. Nothing that you can do. Jesus commissioned us, right, to live for him. And to minister for him. We call it the Great Commission. It's how Matthew winds up in chapter 28. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And verse 20 says, And behold, 
I'm with you always. Always. Matthew started his gospel with presence, and he ends his gospel with presence. Even to the end of the age. I'm leaving bodily. I'm giving you my spirit. And I'm coming back. And when I come back, it changes everything. How do you know that? Ezekiel 48. Fascinating passage. The last 10 or 12 chapters of Ezekiel, he's been prophesying, right? And Jerusalem falls. And now everyone's in captivity. And their hearts are broken. And Ezekiel gets this incredible vision about what's coming. Again, not looking to this incarnation, the story of Christmas, like the 2,000-year-ago story, but looking to the end. That there's going to come a day when all the wrongs are righted. And along the way in this, these last few chapters of Ezekiel, you get this vision of Jesus coming back and coming back to stay. It's a vision of hope, by the way. It's a vision of hope. This is what Ezekiel's, even as, as they were in exile, this is what this vision is. It's a vision of hope about a garden city. Now, here's the question for all the Bible nerds in the room. Is the, Bible, is the garden city Jerusalem, or is it another city? Well, that's, theologians have been arguing about that for a long time, right? Is it Jerusalem? I don't know. What I know is that Jesus is there. In Ezekiel 48, 35, the last verse in the book ends this way. The name of the city from that time on shall be. No need to change the name anymore. I don't know if it's Jerusalem. I, I know what the name is after Ezekiel 48, 35. That's what we're going to call it. That's the theme. Remember the, the importance of names for them? That's the theme. This is the idea. What, what is it that sets this city apart? Presence. Incarnational presence. When he was converted, Charles Wesley immediately began writing hymns. He wrote hymns that were packed with doctrine, hymns that talked deeply about the strength and the beauty of Jesus Christ. He wrote all the time. In fact, uh, it's said that when he was on horseback, his mind would be flooded with new ideas for songs. And so when he saw a house, sometimes he would stop and he would run inside. They didn't know him. He would stop and run inside and say, can you give me paper and a pen? Because I have to write this down. I just had this idea, right? He would run in asking for pen and ink. He wrote more than 6,000 hymns during his lifetime. And at the age of 32, he wrote a hymn, a Christmas hymn, that says in the second verse, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. See if you don't hear the drippings of Matthew 1, that Isaiah 7:14 prophecy, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hey, God came near. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. 
pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And so you bet the herald angels are going to sing. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Here's the thing. I don't know where you stand in relation to Jesus. I don't know if you've put your faith in his sacrifice on the cross for you or not. But what I know is this. Whether you are aware of it or not, the magic of Christmas that we talk so much about, and it is a magical time. It really, really is. The magic of Christmas, I will always believe that at its core, at the bottom, at the foundation for everyone, the magic of Christmas is that God came near. You may not be totally aware of that. You may not be aware of, of all the implications and the applications. But God came near. Never to go away. He's still near. God, we thank you for the comfort, the encouragement we can find in this passage from Romans 8 and from several other passages that are similar to it that echo into our hearts the idea that we can't be separated. Once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we cannot be separated from your love. There was nothing we do to earn our way into your love, and so there's no kind of performance that would cause us to turn to, to be able to go backwards. We didn't get here based on our performance, and we're not going to be kicked out based on our performance. You love us because you are gracious and loving. It's who you are. And you don't wink at our sin and you don't pretend that it doesn't exist. You shine light onto it and you deal with it. And you call us to, you call us to deal with it. And as we follow you, it causes us to deal with it as we listen to your spirit. Not because we want you to love us, but because you already do. So help us to know the reality of the incarnation. Help us to experience deeply the power of the incarnation. God, the idea that you came near, that the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and humanity will never be the same because of it. And so we thank you for the presence of Jesus and for his love. Right now, as we prepare to celebrate communion, we reflect on and we rejoice in Jesus' presence and our unity, not just with each other, but ultimately, God, the communion we experience with you. Give us hearts of celebration. Give us eyes wide with wonder to see that the magic of Christmas is the magic of the incarnation. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.